everybody. Welcome to Evil Pudding, a true crime podcast. Our 30th episode. What up? It's almost my age. Bullshit. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Uncalled for. I call a violation, flagrant foul, right off the start. I call bull honky. You're you're banned. Get out of this episode. I'm banned. I'm canceled. (laughs) I've canceled you today. My name's Courtney. And I'm Patrick. And we're your lovely hosts. (laughs) And this week we're back to our regular scheduled program where Courtney talks about some of the most fucked up, depraved people, and I make stupid ass comments. So regular programming. I'm better with this. I like it better this way. I'm more comfortable. Are you? Much. Yeah. That's okay. That's good. You're going to have a turn, I'm sure, in the near future with another prison episode, so. Maybe. I thought you were doing the next prison episode. We'll I'm going to do out. the next one for sure. Maybe, maybe I got some more cryptids. Ma- I don't know. Maybe you have some more cryptids. Maybe we start keeping that content special for something else. I don't know. Oh, yeah. So we were discussing the fact that, so we've gotten a lot of messages talking about Patreon and, you know, when we're going to hop on that train. So would y'all be interested in us doing a Patreon starting one and maybe just at first we can do I was thinking like a tipsy Tuesday and where we just go live and have some drinks and just bullshit with y'all like friends yep, live or and maybe, then and then we'll put out some content ad free of course maybe we can put some of the more abstract episodes maybe maybe the prison series maybe just the cryptids maybe yeah. other things like that that don't necessarily the whole audience wants to hear but certain people want to hear we well, put on there I'll, I'll tell you I'll what sell I, feet pics uh, <laughs> no, oh, okay. no one wants to see your wrong, ogre feet. <laughs> wrong platform for that? Yeah, that's OnlyFans. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> but what I was thinking of, I have some cases that I just, I hate to cover because I think they would offend some people because they're, yeah. 100%. So, uh, so some cases like that, maybe some of the darker ones, that some you of the darker ones that advertise. I don't want to. Yeah. So if y'all are interested, or even the short ones know. that we can't do like a full episode. Oh maybe yeah, it's 20, absolutely. Yeah, and we don't want to put a full episode on that. Absolutely. Maybe we can do mini sods, like you call them. So that's another. That's one of our topics of discussion. We wanted to cover Patreon. Yeah, so one hundred. Send feedback on any of the socials. On our Instagram is probably the best. Instagram's way. the best. Um, or, or email evilpuddingpodcast at gmail Yep, easy. Just contact us. You know where to find us. And then also we got stickers in. We got stickers finally. And we did come. I will post a picture of them. So I am not going to charge anybody. But if y'all would like some, just the first kind of test batch, please just send me a DM on Instagram only at Evil Pudding. It's not podcast, right? Evil on Pudding Instagram. Pod, I thought, on Instagram. No, it's uh, Evil Pudding Podcast on Instagram. Um, just send me a DM, um, send me your address, and I will mail it to you free of charge, as many as you want. Well, not like 100, please. We'll give you a couple. Yeah. We're not going to send you 100. We'll send Don't you be a douche and be like, can I have 200? No, you can't. Unless you're going to give them to 200 people that are going to listen to the show, then 100%. Then maybe. We got we'll you. talk. <laughs> but um, anything else you want to talk about? Uh, God, 30 episodes. Yeah, this is the 30th episode. That's crazy. The 30th one. Well, I'm so glad that I have the case that I'm doing for the 30th episode. It's a big one. I've been super excited. I've wanted to cover this forever, but. It should have been my Eastern State Pen one. I'm just saying. Oh, we'll get there. Fucking epic. 
It was epic. Um, it wasn't. I just want to say that. You did a wonderful job. Thank you. Everybody tell Pat how much we love it when he hosts. I feel like I'm a spaz. I feel like I talk like so sporadically and so hyper because I get so like, eh. Oh, same. And then by the end of it, I'm just drunk. So I'm like, yeah, this is a fucking badass <laughs> building that has some shit going down, man. You a know? by the end of it. <laughs> oh, please don't do that. <laughs> Pretty sure I do that every episode, so. That's not true. I know. I'm kidding. But if you want to get drunk with us, then we can go on Tipsy Tuesdays and do that one day, one time and just see how it goes over. I like and hate that idea because I do have work in the morning. <laughs> well, not like, you know, I know blackout, I know. but you get No, but have say. drinks and have fun and have a happy hour Tuesday or something like that. Yeah. Just chat, get to know each other, all of our listeners. I don't know. We're still experimenting with those ideas, so we'll figure it out. Yeah. But for now, let's get into it because I'm super excited about this episode. Like, yes. I can hardly contain myself. Yes, please. So today we are looking into a brutal murder that has all the elements of a psychological thriller or horror flick, and it is a stark reminder that sometimes real life can be far stranger than fiction. If you're a true crime fan, a conspiracy fan, and or a fan of the otherworldly, this will be your episode because we will be discussing government mind control, the occult, secret sexual pleasure rooms. What the fuck? A mansion in the woods, a horrific double homicide, and even some occurrences that are just, for lack of a better word, unexplained. And to add to the lore, this all occurred in a small town right smack in the middle of the Bible Belt in small town southern USA. So without wasting any more of your precious time, please allow me to share with you the extraordinarily unbelievable story of the murders at Corpsewood Manor. Okay. Never heard of it. Corpsewood Manor. It's a great name for a murder. Fabulous. Kind of sounds like we're going to get like an X-Files mixed with yeah? 50 Shades of Grey. Actually, yeah. <laughs> mixed with Saw. Yeah. That's fucking weird. Okay. That's actually a very good description. That's I'm not, not mad a at good it. good description because that's very confusing. Oh. So, before we dive into the characters of this saga, let's talk about where it occurred. Because the location plays a huge part in this, obviously. You'll see why soon enough. Tryon, Georgia is a tiny little town in Chattooga County, not to be confused with Chattanooga in the northwestern part of the state of Georgia. All right, so Appalachian Mountains. Yes, very much so. Mm -hmm. As of 2020, the town of Tryon's population was only 1,827. Oh, it's a little-ass town. And in 1982, which is when our story takes place, uh, the population was only 1,700. So we're talking small and not a lot of growth and change in this predominantly Christian southern town. Coming to the small town, you may find that time moves a little slower here. It always seems like that in small towns, doesn't it? Absolutely. Even when you're driving from like Houston to Waco and you go through all the small towns. It's just, just seems stuck like back it in time. Down. Absolutely. Like time never moved. Sorry. Yep. This is a good point. Yeah. Well, for instance, the same probate judge in Tryon and other prominent officials that held office back in 1982 are still on the payroll today, probably in the same outdated suits that they used to wear back then. The more colonial wigs? Oh, wait, that was it. No, that one's British. <laughs> the 1980s, I'm sorry. <laughs> 
Very little of the land in Tryon is undisturbed by development, and amongst all the trees and beautiful landscape, many of the buildings look like you literally step back in time. It's an odd and quirky little town with many layers, I must say. Okay. To further explain this, I'd like to quickly touch on a man named Howard Finster, and he is unrelated to our case today, but important nonetheless. Okay. So Howard Finster is a famous, nationally known folk artist and inventor. However, residents of Chattooga County will tell you that he was just the local bicycle repairman. In 1940, Finster had begun working on what would be called a garden museum, where he wanted to publicly display his inventions that he loved to tinker with. That's kind of how I would describe him. Initially, he was a tinkerer. Yeah. But one day in 1976, Finster claimed that God spoke to him and told him to create sacred art. That's a quote. He replied that he wasn't an artist by trade, but the voice apparently still commanded him to do it. Okay. So in obedience, Finster took out a dollar bill and from the image of George Washington created his very first piece of, quote, sacred art. And that was the beginning of Howard Finster's very successful career. Over time, he claimed that God would ask him to create 5,000 paintings and Finster would far exceed that number in his lifetime. To this day, you can go to Paradise Garden in Tryon and find his eclectic artwork artwork displayed. Much of his art is created from garbage and old cars. The painted old cars are super cool, by the way. I'll post some pictures. He even went as far as to painting his own coffin before he died. I mean, I'd be down to do that too, though. Like, yeah, he's a great I'm artist. I'm going to go in his box for the rest of my life, I'm going to make this shit gangster. <laughs> in, <laughs> gangster. In 1982, the same year that our story takes place, God instructed Howard, allegedly, God instructed Howard to purchase an old abandoned church and remodel it. Today, it's still there, and it's known as the world's folk art church. And you can imagine it's something else because he was quite the artist. It has 16 sides and layers to it. It looks a lot like a huge wedding cake, if you can imagine. I'll also post pictures of that. But Finster's fame did not stop here, though. He was contracted to do album covers for little bands that you may know, Pat, such as R.E.M. and the Talking Heads in 1980. Oh, I mean, I'm instantly able to kind of see the artwork. Really? Just because I remember some of their album covers early on. He did their album covers. Um, I don't think it was God that spoke to him. I think it was fucking LSD, but whatever. (laughs) It was the 70s. I'm just saying. No, but I can instantly think of the kind of artwork he has because I remember some of their their. It's their very folky and yeah. eclectic, yep. Yep. and it's very, lots of colors. He loved Elvis. It was a very colorful yeah. kind of abstract kind of like fluidy. I, I almost want to say he's he's an amazing artist. So you can still go there and see his work today. So for there not to be many people living there, Tryon really is something else aside from the eccentric art scene. Quiet and unassuming, Chattooga County was no stranger to crime. The same year as our story takes place, a teenage girl named Judith Neely and her husband, so she was married as a teenager, and they went on to kidnap and rape a 13-year-old girl named Lisa Ann Milliken before injecting her with Drano and throwing her off a cliff. Yeah. Sounds like a lovely little fucking town. 
And after the couple's arrest, Judith would murder yet again when she entered into a suicide pact with another female inmate. The inmate would kill herself, yet, of course, Judith never did. Judith Neely would become the youngest woman to receive the death penalty in the United States. Also in 1982, Chattooga County was the location of the infamous Tri-State Crematorium debacle. This is all in 1982, by the way. I'm talking about the same year. Yeah. In the the same place. The same little-ass town with a thousand people right now. So back then it probably had like 500 people. So effectively, a crematorium worker named Ray Brent would be charged with 787 counts of abandoning bodies to rot in the grounds as opposed to cremating them like he was supposed to do. It's just awful. As you may have gathered, there was... Quite a stirring in Chattooga County during that specific year, 1982. Shocking for such a small, unassuming town with deep-seated Christian values. There seemed to be a storm brewing all leading up to the most shocking of all the crimes. So with that said, let's go ahead and meet our victims. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's starting to sound like this little-ass Bible town Mm -hmm. has... I see where you're coming from, the conspiracy of the world, because it's... You have a town that small, and he's kind of fucked up things all in the same year. It's almost yeah. like some other forces at work, like some oh, supernatural beginning to end. Something beginning is to fucking end. Just wrong. It's there. just crazy. Like, like a this cursed is town in some way. This story is almost unbelievable. Like it's just insane. I'm just fucking get to it. Okay. Oh, no. Well, quit talking. I'm just kidding. Damn, it's a podcast. I'm I know. To fucking talk. I know. We're married, by the way. If we didn't. <laughs> if you can't tell. <laughs> So, Dr. Charles Scudder, he was a brilliant, cultured... <laughs> I love how you look at me after you say the name, like I'm supposed to know who the fuck that is. Well, no, I just wanted to... I know, it's just the way you look at me, you're like... Scudder. And you stare at me, and I'm like, okay. Because most this? people, when they hear Scudder, they're like, what, Scud, 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 See, I've learned on here not to pick on people's names, yeah. right? And especially, I'm not going to make fun of a victim's name. Mm-hmm. I'll make fun of the killer's name. Well, I was long. looking at you to see if you wanted me to clarify it. Nope, I got you. Because you're usually like, what? Oh, I got you. Okay, anyways. So Dr. Charles Scudder, he was a brilliant, cultured, and well-spoken middle-aged man. According to his resume, he studied zoology, languages, and chemistry. He graduated from the Stritch Medical School of Loyola, Loyola University in Chicago, Illinois, receiving his doctorate in pharmacology, and eventually went on to work there as an associate professor. So he's a smart guy. In addition to being an associate professor, Dr. Scudder also held a director's position for the medical school's study of mind, drugs, and behavior. Okay. And it was here that the professor participated in conducting government-funded experiments that use psychoactive drugs to include that government-grade LSD to study the human mind and explore mind control and interrogation methods. You may know this as MKUltra. Well, I mean, it's a very common thing that has a ton of conspiracy behind it. Theories yeah, behind absolutely. it from the late 70s, early 80s when they can, when so they he, did experiment on mind control with drugs. He has quite quite a past, you know. And he's also got some ties to some shit, right? So he's funded by the government to do that. You know he's got 
good and bad people following what he Well, does. he just worked for this university, and I think that university had ties, not so much him. But it doesn't matter. He's working on the project, so you know there's people watching everything they're doing. Oh, yeah. And good he, and bad. But he's that brilliant that he could be trusted oh, with this kind of stuff. I mean, he, he is a smart dude. Anyone who met Scudder would say that he was eccentric, but a great guy who would chat with you for hours about endless topics that interested him. And many topics, and, and many of those topics did interest him. He was brilliant, absolutely loved to read, just you name it. He wanted to learn about it. He was awesome. It's one of those people that likes to learn shit. He differed from the other professors. He stood at only 5'6". He was a small man who was known sometimes to dye his normally dark hair bright purple in color. So he was very out there. He's just, he he's just, just is, he seems like my kind of people, just kind of just being who he is and just living his life. Just living, living his, his life. damn life. So Scudder obviously lived in Chicago because he taught at Loyola and was doing very well for himself. He lived in Chicago's West Side in a mansion, actually, on West Adams Street, which is he he actually lived in the most expensive house in the neighborhood, actually. Okay. He was a different Divorcee. How do you even say that word? Divorcee. 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 I mean, I'm Frenching it up, so it's divorcee. You're churching it up. So he was divorced twice. <laughs> he had two failed marriages behind him. Probably because he was working all the time. Well, yeah. He had two failed marriages behind him, and from his second marriage, he had four adult sons. Unfortunately, at the age of 17, his youngest son, Ahab, passed away. Ugh. Yeah, and I was just unable to find the cause of Ahab's death anywhere. Um, but it did say that he tragically died. So it was, you know, obviously accident an accident or, or something along those lines. Yeah. But Scudder, although he had no spouse and no kids running around his mansion, he did not live on his own. Also living there with him in his mansion was a name, a man by the na- a name. Was a name. The name was living in the mansion. <laughs> was a man by the name of Joseph Odom, and we'll refer to him as Joey from now on because that's what he went by. And there's going to be another Joey down the road, but don't get confused. This is Joey Odom. He went by Joey. Joey. This no, we're not going to call him that. That's okay. stupid. <laughs> so for 17 years, Joey served as Doctor Scudder's housekeeper, cook, errand boy, and companion. Aaron, what he kind did, of title yeah. is that? Like The pair were very much intimate. Oh. And they had a strong bond and relationship. And although they were they never openly put a label on it because of the time, the 60s and the 70s, uh, it's very safe to say that Dr. Scudder and Joey Odom were partners, although they were not openly gay. Couldn't be back then. You couldn't be. Much harder to be, I should say. In an article that Dr. Scudder had written for Mother Earth. Earth News in 1981, he would divulge that Joey had even helped him raise his children. So you can see how close they are. Yeah. They're, they're family. Well, yeah, they're, they're in a relationship. Oh, we just absolutely. Can't pronounce it to the world because it's 1980s, 1970s. Sad. Now, these two were just crazy cool guys. <laughs> I love this part. At one point, they had a pet monkey. Yes. Yeah. They had very eccentric taste and decor. That included various antiques. He was a collector. They had high-end art. And they had a huge pink gargoyle fountain that they would later take with them when they moved to Georgia. Spoiler alert, they do, in fact, move to Georgia. Well, I figured that. Yeah. 
These are your people because this is, this is these you. are my people. This is they me. got a pet monkey. They're weird as hell. They got a, pr- <laughs> a pink ass gargoyle statue in their house. <laughs> this is you. Like no joke. This is you. Definitely. The pair had this is you. The pair had two huge English mastiffs named Beelzebub, which yes. is believed to be another name for Satan, and Arsenath, uh, named after character a character from the writings of H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, Beelzebub! Ooh, a little Lovecraft in here, huh? Beelzebub adds another layer to the story. Absolutely. Oh, you just wait. Lovecraft is you. You just wait. And one more interesting layer to Doctor Scudder, he was a member of the Church of Satan. Of course, he was. Now, I have to say that really? I was I was very uneducated as to the belief system of the Satanic Church, so I looked into it, uh-huh. uh, and I'm glad I did. It's Con- not what you think. No, it's not. Contrary to what many people believe, members of the Church of Satan do not worship Satan. They're better described as atheists. Yes. From my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, the Church of Satan, which was founded by Anton LaVey, named themselves that to kind of thumb their nose at the deities of other religions, which I had no idea. Just a quick side note. And also, if I'm wrong here, please reach out to me and correct me nicely because— I'm not trying to offend anybody. <laughs> no, they're, but they are misunderstood. They are very misunderstood. so much about worshiping they're humanists, the devil. They're humanists, I think. Yeah, it's, I mean, I can go into a ton on that. We're not going to do that right now. I think it's that. It's on wasn't about worshiping the devil. I think they're more humanists than anything. It is, and it was also about broadening religion to not just one deity, and mm-hmm. different powers, different, different aspects of different religions. I mean, there's a whole 55 layers to it. It's just. To your point, it is not worshiping the devil. No, not at all. So it, it did evolve into that at some points. With that knowledge, you'll be surprised to know that in 1975, Charles Scudder and all that you know about him decided to purchase a 40-acre tract of land in the middle of the Chattahoochee National Forest in Tryon, Georgia, of all places. No, but seriously, this is literally something you and I have talked about. Like, oh, off the grid, sure. You. Live your life, right? You make your money. And then when you get to the point your kids are grown, you're, they're gone, you're happy, you're done with what you work, you got money, go fucking buy a piece of land out in the middle of fucking nowhere with your monkey and your goats and your gargoyle statue and all your bullshit. That's what I want. Exactly. That's what I want. So, I mean, I'm down with what he's doing here. With my alpaca? Why he decided to do this? Why wouldn't he? Well, living in Chicago, Scudder was becoming more and more disillusioned with the rat race of city living, much like 100%, us. 100%, yes. Yes. He was tired of watching. Well, this was also a factor back then. Remember, he's in Chicago in the 80s. So he yeah, was it's tired a, it's of. a metropolitan boom back Yeah, there. he was tired of watching his city disintegrate around him. Both Scudder and Joey, his partner, they wanted to live off the grid where they could create their own peaceful kind of Zion away from judgmental neighbors. They wanted peace in a place that Joey could have his garden. He loved to garden. And they could just kind of live without the judgment of anybody. But, and, d- dude, that makes so much sense because... Totally think, support think that. Think about the fucking judgment these guys are getting. Oh, They're for gay. sure. Yeah. They're eccentric as fuck. Yeah. They're part of the Church of Satan. Probably because that's the only place they feel accepted, to be honest. I'm, I'm just saying, but think about the community around them. So they, yeah. they, they people find out they're part of the Church of Satan. They're gay. Mm-hmm. They got pink gargoyle statues and shit. People are just like... The judgment is out of control probably with these two. Especially in the high society West End that he moved to. Yeah. Oh. So it's the high society life. Well, he said in that article, you can go back and read that article for Mother Earth Magazine online, by the way. Any of you can. And um, 
he talked about how it was his neighborhood, like because the neighborhood around him was losing so much value because it was, he called it, quote, the ghetto. But then his mansion was like the, like one of the nicer places. So it was devaluing. Oh, 100%. So he just, he was done. He didn't want to owe anybody anything. He was done. We'll get into that though. On Dr. Scudder's 50th birthday in 1976, he resigned from the medical school to go and live out this dream. But before he left, he made sure to take a few souvenirs with him. Three vials totaling mm-hmm. 12,000 doses of government-grade LSD, known as LSD-25, as well as two human skulls. Skulls. Uh, well, the skulls kind of fit into it, and then actually it don't make sense. Never mind. So it's important to note that I couldn't find anything about Dr. Scudder or Joey dabbling in LSD themselves. Uh, so this kind of makes me wonder if he didn't just kind of take it as a either a souvenir or perhaps as potential evidence if he needed it in the or, near future. Or, but it could be or, to sell. It could be to use. It could be all those things. Yeah. And no, the skulls, Church yeah. of Satan, no, rituals. Yeah. Well, or in the instance that there may be a future investigation into these studies, he may have kind of Yeah, I think honestly. Saw it coming. Maybe the LSD <laughs> with the skulls is much more. The skulls, I don't. I just I, think he thought they were cool. I think it has that's to do with his, the, that's his style. But I also He's think gothic. it has to do with the Church of Satan because a lot of times they use those kind of human skulls or, or bones. I just think he liked the style. And rituals. Yeah. Nothing dark, but they use, I mean, it is dark, but they use that kind of stuff so he has them. Yeah, maybe. But also, when you see how they decorated their manner. They got pink gargoyles and shit. They're gothic as hell. They're fabulous. And I I mean. One might even say neo-gothic. Can you blame them? Like, if you have access to. Never mind. Anyways. Yeah, I can blame them. If they have access to body parts and stuff, you don't steal them. No, but if you have a cool skull that no one's going to miss. And you were part of like MK Ultra. It's like, hey, I'm going to take some stuff before I go because y'all are weird, you know? Yeah, and one, to your point, 100%, it could be, in case you come after me, I got some shit. Exactly. So, Scudder would also auction off nearly all of his worldly possessions. And they sold their home and used that money to buy a camper, probably an Airstream, <laughs> a Jeep. I think it was a CJ7. Don't even tease me like that. And a wood stove. And in the middle of a horrible blizzard, Joey, Dr. Scudder, and their two beloved dogs made their way to their new home in Tryon, Georgia. So some may say that their venture to their new forever home would be cursed from the beginning. Like I said, they arrived during a blizzard and they had trouble kind of navigating their way through the thick snow to find their plot of land. After hours of being seemingly lost, they finally found the road leading up to their acreage, and they were greeted by the rotting carcass of a dead horse blocking the road. Now, they probably love that shit. I don't know. I don't know. The the two they just had a great sense of humor. They were they just shrugged everything off, and well, they're living up. They're moving to their dream. <clears throat> of course, they had a great sense of humor. They were super go with the flow. So they decided to laugh it off, and they even named that road leading up to their eventual home, and it's still named this to this day. It's called Dead Horse Road, which I think is cool. Now, they had to find a name for their estate that they're 
They were going to build themselves, by the way. They didn't hire anybody to help them. Oh, they're going to straight up like... Oh, yeah. We'll get into that. Yeah. Okay. So, since it was the middle of a brutal winter when they arrived and all the trees on their land were dead and skeletal, they decided to name it Corpse Wood Manor because the trees were like corpses. Okay. They were like skeletal. No, not at all. It's metaphoric. Very much so. Now, to get started building their dream palace in the woods, Charles, like we said before, was absolutely brilliant. He had simply read a book on how to build a self-sustaining home, and that's exactly what they spent the next few years doing. Like, he read a book and so he's, built this. He's, he's literally one of those dudes. He's one of those guys. And he's like, I don't know how to do it. And wait till you see pictures of this home. Oh, I'm sure it's extravagant. <laughs> oh, it's gorgeous. I mean, it's not huge. I would still consider it. It was still considered a mansion just because of, you know, everything that went into it. But Also, depending on the area. It and- is something else. Yeah. It's absolutely amazing. So, before the home was livable, the couple slept in the Jeep then in a tent, and then they built their, first they built what was called the chicken house, and they stayed there while constructing the main house, which we're going to get into the chicken house in a little bit, not right now. Okay. Do they have chickens? It's important. Oh, they have, remember, they're like off the grid and self-sustaining. Yeah. I'm just asking that because to me it makes Mm -hmm. sense. If you're going to have chickens and you need a shelter over your head more than a tent, you build a little chicken coop or chicken house. You can live in that while you're building everything else. That's exactly what they did. Then by summer, because remember they arrived in the winter, by summer, the first floor of the main house was constructed, allowing them to finally move into their new home. After the second floor and the roof were up, they were able to fully occupy the beautiful structure. And like I said, I'll post pictures of the manor. It wasn't huge, but it's just gorgeous. It's hard to believe that they built it themselves. It's impressive, like beyond impressive. It was quite comfortable for them, despite having no electricity, no running water. They did not want that. But they had dug a well themselves for water and irrigation for their future gardens. And at night, they uh, lit the manor up by candlelight. They even made their own candles with wax from the beehives that they kept. So they are legit fucking off. They the were grid. serious when they said that they want they owed no one electricity bills. Yep. They they had their own like. They had hand-pumped water. I mean, it's amazing. And it does feed into a conspiracy theory. I don't know where the conspiracy comes in yet, but it does feed into it, right? Because you can't be tracked if you don't have a bill in your name. If you don't have electric water, you don't have anything in your name, it's much harder to find you. Yeah. So it kind of feeds into a little bit of a conspiracy theory down the road, especially coming out of a government mind-controlled drug fucking study. Actually, that has nothing to do with it. If I know, you can't, but I mean, if you can could, believe it that. It can feed the story. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm just, I'm not saying it has anything to do with it. I'm saying it can feed the narrative. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're completely off the grid. So it's more conspiracy level. Like, why are they off the grid shit? Yeah. No, they just wanted it like this. Or they Kinda just like wanted us. to be like, fuck everybody. I want to be alone. Like us. A hundred percent. Driving <laughs> to town to upload the podcast. <laughs> they, exactly. They are us. Without the the chicken house. I'll, I'll just say that. I'll just say that. That's a hint, by the way. And I can't read a book and build shit okay. like that. Yeah, and then there's that. <laughs> so you may be thinking, wouldn't it be hot or cold in the winter? Because they have no AC. And it's Georgia. No. 
Charles had researched enough and had equipped the manor with three-layer thick brick walls for insulation. Each layer had a certain amount of space between, I guess, for, like, ventilation. Air movement. Yeah. And they were—it was comfortable. And everybody—during the winter, they had, like, you know, a fireplace and kerosene lamps and stuff like that. But it was—no one ever complained. It was always comfortable. It's now, crazy. The design theory makes sense with the air movement. It's If it's hot outside, it's got to go through multiple layers, but the air movement in between the brick layers kind of cools. Same yeah. thing in the winter. Heat from the inside isn't lost because there's so many layers. Yeah, that makes sense. They were truly self-sufficient. As Charles had stated himself in this article written for Mother Earth magazine, I keep referring to it, uh, he didn't want to be a part of the rat race anymore, and he didn't want to owe anyone anything. And he had absolutely accomplished this dream, aside from just property taxes. That's what he owed. That's yeah, it. that's I mean, you can't get away from that. Yeah. So they had fruit trees and vegetable gardens. They were all planted, and Joey absolutely thrived tending to these crops. He especially loved his rose garden. That was his thing. He yeah. loved it. They even had, do? yeah, he loved it. They even had their own vineyard on the property. That's badass. Mm-hmm. Get this. They harvested grapes to make their own homemade wine, but they were said to have not only made wine from fruit, they also made a vegetable wine that surprisingly was actually pretty good. I mean, good for them, but ugh. Well, you know, you eat, drink your salad. <laughs> okay, I mean, you're going to tell me a salad with alcohol? It does sound better. Yeah. I mean, it exactly. does sound better than a regular salad. I, I mean, hey. Throw bacon on a salad, it sounds better. Throw booze <laughs> in it, it sounds even better. So, it just sounds kind of like a utopia to me. I'm in, right? I mean, it's a self-sufficient, fuck everybody, fuck everything. They just want to be happy. They're just living you know? their life being happy. Yeah. So, of course, the eccentric couple decorated their manor with gothic pieces and statues to include the huge pink gargoyle that they put in a very special place right above the entrance to the main house. And I'll post a picture of the house on Instagram. It's actually in the promo picture of this episode. Okay. But I'll post more detailed pictures, of course. Uh, It's so cool. And you're going to see it in all of its glory. It's right above the entrance of, like, the archway before you get to the front door. So it's the first thing you see when you pull up to the main house. Big ass pink gargoyle. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So Dr. Scudder told his friends that he had summoned a demon to protect his grounds as well. And, but one thing you have to know about Dr. Scudder is he's just, he's a bullshitter and he loves to talk for shock value. He, he seems like an eccentric person that just wants to get a reaction out of a lot of shit. Well, he loves people. So he wants to like, you know, kind of just rough you up a little bit. And but I mean, everything he's done, a lot of the stuff they're doing, it's, there's some shock value to it. Oh yeah. And he, he lives for that, but yeah. 100%. yeah. He's amazing. We'll get to that. As you can probably guess, the locals of Tryon, though, didn't think he was too amazing. They thought that him and Joey were weird AF. Yeah, and small town as Georgia back then. That's Like you said, straight up small town USA Bible Belt. And they stuck out like a sore thumb in the small town. In fact, many referred to them unfairly as, quote, quote, devil-worshipping homosexuals, even though they bothered absolutely no one. And you're going to see they actually do a lot for the community. No, 100%. But they're terrifying to everyone else because they're different. Yeah. So they're part of the Church of Satan. Mm -hmm. They're gay. So they're instantly, let's just, you know, villainize them with. I think I get to it later, but, well, here we go. We'll go ahead and get to it. 
the couple would go into town every 18 days. That's the only time they would go into town every supplies, 18 days probably. to get, yeah, to restock, get their mail, get some supplies, and then go back to their own little private civilization. Which probably weirded everybody out. But um, when they would go into town, of course, they would drive their Jeep and it was a black Jeep, mm-hmm. and they had a big pentagram painted on the side, which I think is hilarious. Can you imagine the people in that small little town when they thought? <laughs> two gay men come into the town with a pentagram Jeep. It's hilarious. And they come in routinely every 18 days like it's ritualistic. But they're so kind. I know. So a few residents did befriend the couple, and they would claim to have seen what we're going to speak about next. And that is what I've been referring to, the chicken house. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to preface this by saying that we have no photographs of the chicken house. And what I'm about to describe is coming from the police that would be on the crime scene that we're going to talk about in the future after some horrific events take place. So please keep in mind that we're having to take like a few people's words about what right, I'm so it's describing. Not, it's not full-on evidence. It's a lot of sometimes we deal with, we've dealt with it before. It's word of mouth. It's stories that could be embellished, could be true. Yeah, and in a crime scene, why wouldn't you take photos? There were cameras in the 80s, and the yeah, police... Yeah, do, do we really want to no, go down that road? No, we've done I know. this a million okay. times with every case in the 70s and 80s. They're like, why are they don't they have small-town police <laughs> like that? It's not L.A. with... Dealing with you know the night stalker or not the night stalker well yeah the night stalker yeah it's not, in LA. It's mm-hmm. not California dealing with I just drew a damn blank Riddle Man hmm? Riddle <laughs> Man Riddle Man <laughs> Are you okay I read the Zodiac I called his ass Riddle Man You're fired go go outside think about what you've done <laughs> Seriously I need to. I need you to think about what you've done No but it's not like it's not like LAPD dealing with that shit or California police yeah. dealing with that This is small town USA that probably had like a couple murders from horse thieves or something They probably had like some shoplifting That's No cool. think about all the evil murders they had they had that that couple that was a rape that raped that girl that small I know, but they probably don't know how to do anything because they probably called in everybody else. Usually in small well, towns, everybody's, they call, it's, there's uh, like two cops in the town. They call like anyways, state police and everybody We digress because I'm going to go down a rabbit hole and get angry. But not right. at you, but. Because I called him Riddle Man? No. <laughs> <laughs> not, nothing to do with you. I get angry at these stupid ass people. I'm fucking angry at myself for calling him Riddle Man. You, you're grounded, son. Content. <laughs> Content. <laughs> stupid. Okay, so the chicken house. The chicken house. Back to it. This was a three-story structure. Jeez. And, of course, it housed chickens on the ground floor because they can't climb stairs. <laughs> or can they? I don't know. Wow. Anyways, <laughs> ignore that. <laughs> so there was a ladder um, that you had to climb to reach all the other floors. Yeah, definitely not for the chickens. I mean, maybe they can climb. We don't know. Okay. Anyway. Anyways, so the middle floor was used to store canned goods as well as Joey and Charles' alleged large library of pornography, which, whatever, they had porn, whatever. Oh, no. The reason that it was probably so large is probably because it was, you know, VHS tapes and whatnot. (laughs) If I had to guess. (laughs) The 80s. We ate track porn. So, shut up. So the third floor was allegedly a pleasure room known as the Pink Room, where Joey and Charles would entertain guests. 
to be clear, I believe that this room did exist to an extent. I do not believe that it's what the cops made it out to be. I'll just put it that way. It makes sense. Okay. Okay. So in lieu of chairs for the guests to sit, um, mattresses with pink bedding lined the floor. And the walls were painted pink as well. They like pink. Um, It was lit by oil lamps. And the room contained, allegedly, whips and chains to be enjoyed by willing guests. They were very big on, if you're going to come over for this, it's going to be consensual. So they're not rapists. Very. No. Not by any means. That's Okay, fine. Whatever. Live your life. Yeah. Whatever. You're not hurting anyone. As long as it's 100% consensual, live your life. Yep. So it also contained a guest book of sorts that has been frequently referred to, but never seen. Allegedly, a book where visitors would sign in with their name and date along with their sexual preferences. So it's like, hi, I'm Patrick. I like to be called daddy. Dude, that <laughs> is literally the book of dirt. Like that it's is a book the, of dirt. You have dirt on every human being in town. Now, this book would never be photographed nor signed into evidence in the future. However, let me tell you why. I know why. That may be because some investigators did note, and they verbalized, that there were a few prominent local residents who had signed in, which would make total sense. Who would would want that getting out, right? We're going to go... You may have a chief of police, you may have a judge, you may have somebody, and then if you don't leak that, you hide that, you are forever in their debt. We're going to, yeah, we'll go more into detail about that later. That's exactly why you wouldn't do it. I just wanted to go ahead and say that all this is very, we have to loosely take it, how and it, it's being presented and it, to us. But it's also a small town. So if we've seen movies, everybody that's been from small towns, they keep things hush-hush if they can. Very they much don't so. Want, they don't want things coming out, especially with a couple like this and all this evidence. They don't want this leaking on prominent members of society in their small town. Yeah. That have been there for 40 years in the same job. But Charles, he just was who he was who he was, you know? Um, it is proven, and there were letters found, uh, that he corresponded with many men openly uh, with explicit letters. He was very big on consent. He tested the waters, and if they were willing to write back and forth, it's kind of like sexting, but with letters. because the Yeah, exactly. So they found boxes of that. And of course, I'm sure this was huge. But he's not doing anything wrong. I mean, he's 100% consensual with everything he's doing. So it's Absolutely. not like he's a bad guy here. No, he's not. One interesting side note I learned while researching this, too, and something to keep in mind. Um, you'll be able to chime in on this one. In 1982, premarital sex altogether was illegal in Georgia. Okay. As was sodomy, which was simply defined as sex between two people of the same gender. So I had no idea, and I can't even imagine. Uh, Just sex, not even. Sex, yeah, I didn't know about that. The sodomy and stuff like that, I can understand that. I can honestly tell you, unless things have changed, even in the military, uh, Article 134 of the UCMJ, you can be charged with that for even oral sex between heterosexual members because it's considered sodomy. That's crazy. You can still technically be charged with that. That's insane. Because it says it's sodomy, right? So sodomy can be anything that's other than basically whatever's defined as can as typical sexual encounter. There's there's laws all over every state, and like I said, even in the UCMJ, which is the mm-hmm. Uniform Code of Military Justice, which is a federal book for all military, it's the laws. You can be charged with that shit. That's crazy. So aside from their allegedly risque private life, which unfortunately is very public knowledge nowadays. 
Charles and Joey loved to entertain their few friends at their manor. They had many close friends, including a lady named Candace Williamson, who would frequently come and visit the couple along with her young daughter, Carrie. Okay. According to Candace, and this is a quote from her, when the kids would get too wild, the only thing that would calm them down was the sound of Charles playing the harp. <laughs> he was an amazing harp player. In fact, he had the privilege of playing with the Chicago Symphony in his younger years. There's okay. not a lot this man can no do. Shit. He you, probably you just read a book. Yeah, he read a book and was like, ah, I'll harpist. <laughs> Many of those that visited the manor would speak about how Charles would entertain by playing his gold-plated harp on his terrace while Joey shared their homemade wine. I get this like picture, almost like one of those like Bible photos, like yeah. of like ancient Roman cherubs, cherubs everywhere, just playing his harp <laughs> yeah. as the children frolic about and the others drink homemade wines, <laughs> like <laughs> their vegetable wine. Oh shit, it's a weird. Okay. <laughs> whatever, whatever it's man. wine. Whatever, whatever. After a few, it probably doesn't matter yeah, how it tastes. Yeah, adults don't give a shit. The <laughs> no. adults are just pounding down some drinks. They're just like, you fucking kids play. You play your damn harp guy and just give me some more wine. <laughs> So many of the children would, who would accompany their parents during visits to the manor remembered fondly that the couple would keep little Raggedy Ann-style dolls for them to play with. No. So I <laughs> know you don't like. No. Well, <laughs> Fucking Annabelle. That's that Annabelle. <laughs> it has ever scarred. It has forever scarred me ever since I found out and saw the real Annabelle and found that it was, it was a, a raggedy, Ann raggedy Ann doll. Do you know I had one? Did you have one? Did you have Raggedy Andy? Andy? I had Andy, dude. Yeah. Calm down here. I had Raggedy I had Raggedy Ann. Andy. <laughs> Fucking raggedy anime. No, but seriously, I, I hate that doll. And it's it's kind of spooky. It's creepier now that it's a raggedy Ann yeah, doll. I know. And then what was the other one we talked about the other day? Is the Bahama or the is Florida it Nicholas? Keys. I think is his name. It might be Nicholas. It's the one in the Florida Keys. Yeah. That thing is creepy as shit. Yeah. It's you ever seen a picture scary. of it? It's no fuck that thing. Maybe we need to do an episode on haunted dolls. That'd be fun. It'd be kind of cool. So they're really just painting a picture of a magical, almost ethereal. Place perfect like, word for yeah. it. Majestically ethereal, like the gods of ancient Rome above Absolutely. their harps, their wine, and their fucking children. It, it makes you want to go visit, you know. And the fucking possessed devil doll. <laughs> Even their two seemingly huge and terrifying dogs, the two English mastiffs, would greet visitors driving up to the manor, and many recalled that they were so big that they would come up and stick their heads in your car window through your car window it's when you like park. Like <laughs> yeah, up and the dogs like. Hello, we're here to see, sir. Hello, friend. <laughs> so Scudder and Odom were kind enough to even host a wedding of one of their neighbors on the grounds of their manor as well. This is what, it's crazy to me, right? So like the whole town's like, oh my goodness, there's these gay devil worshipers up there. But everyone's like, yeah, let's go fucking hang out with them. Because they're so cool. And you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Everyone wants to hang out with them, have weddings at their house, drink honeyed wine with their fucking kids frolicking. But then they're like, Absolutely. Oh, they're gay devil worshippers. Well, you know, it was just a select few that gave them the benefit of the doubt and got to know them, actually, you know. And they were probably like, these people are fucking badass. Yeah. These are some, I don't care what you do in your free time, y'all dudes are cool. Yeah. So the couple even welcomed the nosy locals since, and I'm sure there were many, since they lived in the woods, many hunters would kind of wander onto their property and Charles would always greet them and share their homemade wine with them before going ahead and allowing them to hunt on their land. Like, sure, go ahead. You know, yeah, just don't shoot else. at our house, bro. One such hunter was 17-year-old Kenneth, Kenneth Avery Brock, known to many as simply Avery. So that's how I'll refer to him in this episode. He's a key player in this tale, so let's get to know just a little bit about him. 
In his own words, in a letter to author Amy Petula, author of Corpsewood Manor Murders in North Georgia, and I'll link that below in the show notes, he said, and I quote, I've never been to a professional sporting event, nor a live concert, never eaten in a restaurant, never had a job where I drew a paycheck, never paid taxes, never had a driver's license, never been to prom, and don't know what it's like to be loved by a woman. So we're kind of seeing that he's young and he lived in a relatively confined... Fucking sheltered is what he is. Sheltered, yeah. He's never had a real job. He's worked under the table, odds and ends, jobs to make money probably. In a small town. Very typical. The last town, yeah. And that life that he had was definitely not an easy one. He grew up very poor and he had also been abused by his father. So he had it rough. Mm Mm-hmm. In the fall of 1982, 17-year-old Avery was out hunting when he stumbled upon Corpsewood Manor. Ooh, look what I found. Like so many other young people in town, yeah, he had heard whispers of the devil-worshipping homosexuals that lived in the manor, and he was so curious to kind of catch a glimpse of them for himself, as, you know, I'm sure... When you've never met. I want to see the gays. That's exactly <laughs> like, probably the mentality that, that yeah. the whole town like, had. Can we go sneak up and see the gays up in the woods? Like, so sad. Seriously. Like stop. some kind of circus. Yeah, like, like I was about to say, like, like a freak Freaks. show up there or something like that. So Scudder came out and befriended the young man and by Avery's account brought him to the pink room where the pair shared some homemade muscadine wine. Now, it is said that during their first visit together, Avery and Dr. Scudder did have consensual, uh, a consensual sexual encounter. Um, This is, again, Dr. Scudder was very big on consent. And remember, the age of consent was like, what, 14 back in Georgia? I have no idea what it was in Georgia. Yeah, it was crazy. Avery has later confirmed that this encounter did in fact happen. But afterwards, he felt embarrassed and humiliated. However, it didn't stop him from returning to the manor for frequent visits in the following weeks to visit his new friend. You always found something he's kind of interested in here. So, as I said before, Kenneth Avery Brock had nothing in terms of money, and he didn't have a place to live at the time, so he took up residence in the trailer of 30-year-old Tony West. He's how old at this time? Like 16? He's 17. 17. Avery is? Oh, yeah. 17 is always hanging out with 30-year-olds. Yeah. Now, although Avery's life had been rather difficult, he didn't have a criminal history or any kind of violent past. No run-ins with the law. Just a rough life. Yeah, just a shitty life. But we can't say the same for Tony West, for sure. Death seemed to follow Tony West everywhere. At just the age of 13, West shot and killed his two-year-old nephew, Horace Lee Haygood. Wow. While playing with a loaded gun. Sound like an accident, maybe? Fucking play stupid games, win stupid prizes is what it sounds like. Well, let me tell you what happened, and you can decide if you think it was an accident or not. West would deliberately point the loaded weapon <laughs> at the toddler's head and pull the trigger, later claiming that he was just trying to show his nephew that the gun was nothing to be afraid of. <laughs> How'd that fucking work out, asshole? Oh, Jesus. Yeah, accident, my ass? No, it wasn't. So as a result of this, Wes was sent to a mental institution until the age of 18. Oh. Then in the late 70s, Tony West was arrested for theft. And he escaped prison, then proceeded, after he escaped, to shoot his own brother-in-law for some unknown reason. I couldn't find if the brother-in-law survived the shooting or didn't, but I think he did survive. It wasn't a fatal 
shooting. He probably shot him because like he showed up, he escaped prison and showed up and they're like, yo, what the fuck are you yeah. doing here? I'm calling the cops. And he's like, oh no, you're not. So he was 18 and by the age of 30, he was out living on his own, unemployed because as a felon, it was hard for him to find employment. Yeah. So, Especially in the 80s. Yeah, so due to West's inability to find work with his felony record, he figured it would be a good idea to take in a roommate, enter Kenneth Avery Brock. Okay, it's not a bad move. One day while hanging out together, Avery mentioned to West the, quote, queer devil worshipers who were down to share their wine with friends and strangers alike. And never one to turn down free booze, West agreed to go with Avery to Corpsewood Manor one evening, and the pair were welcomed warmly by Dr. Scudder. West would later say of this particular evening, and this is a direct quote, and I'm going to say it in his country accent, and oh, it's not going to oh, be okay. offensive because I myself am from the South. So, from the country. Are you ready? Because this is not really. Not the South. You're from the. I'm from the country. Country. This is really embarrassing for him. Okay. Quote <laughs> Scudder had homosexuality with Avery, and then he reached over to have homosexuality with me, and I told him I didn't believe in it. I wasn't brought up that way, and I just left. End quote. <laughs> he tried to have. Okay. Right. <laughs> tried to have homosexuality with him. He tried to have homosexuality with me. <laughs> okay. Oh, Tony West. He's a smart one. After that evening, West grew increasingly angry and offended that Dr. Scudder could possibly hit on him. Such a big, strong, straight man. I'm not right? fucking gay, bro. You can't do that shit, dude. I'm not fucking gay. That's what he's doing. <laughs> In fact, Avery probably taking a cue from West began to openly resent Dr. Scudder as well, so much so that the pair started to plot revenge. No, 100%. That dude's, like, that's his friend. Yeah. Even though he's been enjoying the encounters. And Dr. Scudder's been so kind to them. Yes, though. but he's, now his friend's like, bro, yeah. not gay. Like, you can't do that to me. The other guy's like, hell yeah, that's screwed up, bro. I, I, he manipulated me or some bullshit. You know what I mean? Like, trying to be real. Oh, yeah, for real sure. Real bros, real tough guys. It was apparent. Um, to them that Dr. Scudder and Joey had money. You know, they have a big, nice house with nice things in it. The pink gargoyle. And they lived in the middle of the woods where no one could hear them scream. So it kind of became their game plan to go to Corpsewood, torture Dr. Scudder and Odom until they revealed where they kept their money. But their depravity didn't end there. Of course not. It wouldn't be on our show if it did. Yeah. To repay Dr. Scudder for having, quote, homosexuality with him, Avery voiced his plan to rape Dr. Scudder with a red-hot soldering iron. Oh. Luckily, this plan would never come to fruition, so don't worry. So that's one positive aspect of the story. I guess. (laughs) There's not many, but that one is positive. In preparation, Avery returned to the mansion one last time for a tryst with Dr. Scudder before the deadly duo could carry out their plan. However, he claimed later that this was solely to kind of case the joint, kind of a reconnaissance mission. So he went back for one more touch and grab Mm -hmm. and was like, I I purely went there to case the place out, bro, because I'm not gay. Yeah. This dude is a piece of work. He is a piece of work. I don't know how much of what he says I believe, you know? But what I think is he may be, you know, bisexual or have gay tendencies and he's enjoying this, but he doesn't want to fall behind his, his bro, his cool guy, his roommate. Yeah. So he went back like, and to be honest, the only account that we have that Dr. Scudder tried anything with West is his word and him saying he tried something. Yeah. 
He could have we did don't something even know. just said, said something to him or looked at him in a way that West was like, oh, he's trying to have homosexuality with me. Homosexuality. Like, no, nah, dude, he just looked at you. He, or he probably, knowing this guy, was like, hey, do you want to join in or something like that? And the guy was like, no. He was okay, like, cool. okay, fine, whatever. Right, go do your thing, whatever. So let's pause for a quick break. And when we return, we will describe to you exactly what went down that fateful day at Corpsewood Manor. December 12th, 1982, West and Avery decided to put their plan into action. Avery went to his mother's house and asked to borrow a 22 caliber rifle. Wonderful. When she asked why he needed it, as you would, he said that he just wanted to do a little rabbit hunting. So, I mean, he hunted a lot, so I don't think she thought anything of it, you know? Yeah, she probably didn't. Small town. So she gave him the rifle and the pair, West and Avery, went to watch some football with West's 19-year-old nephew, Joey LaVon Wells, who was on a first date with a young girl named Teresa Hudgens. As the evening progressed, West and Avery asked if Joey and Teresa wanted to go for a ride, and they agreed. I mean, not much else to do in a small town. That's what you do. You go riding around, you know? Yeah. They're hanging out. They're doing their thing, whatever. So, according to Teresa's testimony later on, during that drive, Avery stated that they were going to the top of the mountain to the devil worshiper's house to drink some of their free homemade wine. Teresa had no idea who or what he was talking about, but Teresa and her date were absolutely up for some free wine. They're teenagers. <laughs> free booze. Let's go. Yeah. So, the two tagalongs readily agreed. I believe, having absolutely no idea what horror no, laid ahead. there to get some free booze. They didn't yeah. realize what was probably intended. So all four would later say that on the way to Corpsewood Manor, they were huffing a noxious mix of paint thinner, glue, and alcohol known as Toodaloo all the way to the top of the mountain. I'm assuming... <laughs> I'm assuming it's called Toodaloo because that's what your brain cells do when you huff it. They go Toodaloo. Oh, sure. Bye bye. Your brain. You. <laughs> toodaloo. I don't recommend doing this at home, please. Please don't try this at home. <laughs> so when they arrived, Doctor Scudder came out front, as was his habit, to warmly greet his visitors. And Joey Odom, Scudder's partner, was still in the kitchen in the main house cleaning up after their evening meal. Scudder invited his four guests, who were undoubtedly high up to the pink room above the chicken house. So all five climbed a ladder up to the pink room. And Scudder lit kerosene lamps for light and warmth because it's winter. And they don't have electricity either. Yeah, exactly. And they all began an evening of drinking homemade wine and having friendly conversation. They're just hanging out. At some point, Avery excused himself under the pretense of having to go and get some more toodaloo. But he really went to grab his ri rifle from West's vehicle. When he returned to the pink room holding a whole ass rifle, <laughs> Scudder, a little tipsy at this point, jokingly said, bang, bang, <laughs> like just trying to defuse the situation. Yeah. And which I think is hilarious. Yeah. Like, what are you, what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to say? Just bang, bang. But his attempt to kind of defuse the situation actually did work for a while because Avery laughed and laid the rifle down and continued to kind of drink and chat with everyone. After 20 minutes or so, Dr. Scudder stood up to relight a kerosene lamp, and Avery grabbed him by the hair, pulling his head back and holding a knife to his throat. By all accounts, Dr. Scudder responded to this by saying, what kind of game do you want to play? I'll play your game. 
Avery didn't answer and instead hurled the doctor onto a mattress. Remember, they have lots of mattresses in the pink room. Hurled the doctor onto a mattress face down and tied his arms behind his back with strips of fabric that he had cut and threaded it through holes through Dr. Scudder's thick coat sleeves. Okay. Yeah, so he's bound. Avery then demanded that Scudder tell him where all the money was. Scudder honestly answered that he had no money at the manor because it was all in the bank, and this was 100% true. Scudder never kept money on him. When he went into town to restock his supplies, he always purchased goods using checks. He kept no money on him. Why would you if you live out in that remotely? Exactly. However, Avery and Wes just weren't buying it. Avery cut more strips from the bedding on the mattress and used it to tie around Dr. Scudder's head, covering his eyes. By now, Teresa Hudgens and Joey Wells were beside themselves with panic. They were like, what is happening? What is going on? Things are getting serious. The pair ran away, climbed down the ladder to West's truck, and attempted to drive away. However, the car wouldn't start. Like... Oh my God, <laughs> I would just be, and you can't just run away out. You're All in the middle of the woods. down the street. Like, there's, there's no streets in the middle of the woods. Oh my God. Running. And plus, West had followed them out with a gun, ordering them to get back up to the chicken house in the pink room, or else he was going to kill them. So they had no choice but to stay put. They were just stuck in this horrifying situation. And remember, guys, this was their first date. <laughs> Can you imagine? I think that beats. All my horror stories of my first dates. Was there a second date? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I would venture to say no. I mean, it's a good reason to say, hey, maybe we should try this again. I don't know. Jesus. I think I need therapy after this. With West and Avery's demands for money just not being met by Dr. Scudder, the pair started to insist that Scudder tell them where he kept his soldering iron. Remember what they wanted to do yeah. to Scudder with that iron? Luckily... Scudder responded that since the manor didn't have electricity, they had no use for a soldering iron, so they didn't have one. Dumbass, we don't have electricity. (laughs) That's what it's used for. (laughs) So his two assailants were just getting nowhere with Scudder. So uh, Avery decided to take his gun and head to the main house to see if he would have more luck with uh, Joey Odom, Scudder's longtime partner who was still cleaning the kitchen inside the main house, blissfully unaware of the horror occurring next door. Yeah. The four remaining in the chicken house would soon hear a barrage of bullets. Then moments later, Avery returned to the pink room claiming, and I quote, I killed that man and those dogs. Why the dogs? Can you imagine Dr. Scudder hearing this? Mm Mm-mm. Like, he heard the barrage of gunfire and then hearing this. That's literally his whole world in that house, you know? Yeah, the two dogs and his his partner. Avery and Brock then dragged a bound and blindfolded Dr. Scudder down the ladder and into the main house. And by now, Scudder's blindfold was either lifted up by one of his assailants or it shifted on its own. But either way, he was forced to witness the absolute gut-wrenching evil inflicted on his longtime companion, Joey Odom and his two beloved dogs. Joey Odom lay on the floor with four bullet holes to his head and one in his arm. By all accounts, he was dead and his blood quickly spread across the floor. West would later say that when he entered the manor, Joey Odom reached for a gun nearby 
However, Scudder and Odom's gun would later be found securely locked away on the second floor, well out of Joey's reach. So he's a liar. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. He's trying to cover his basis there. And what I'm about to say next will further prove just what a liar West is. Oh, of course. Well, yeah, he's a great dude already. And warning, this is rough. The animals. Okay. After seeing Joey Odom dead and bleeding out on the ground, Dr. Scudder saw his two dogs, both dead, still curled around the wood heater, trying to keep warm. They each had one gunshot to the head. This tells me that they didn't even have time to wake up to defend their master from a stranger entering their home, which they would have. They didn't even lift their heads. No, he executed the dogs and shot Joey. This means that Avery just came in and killed in cold blood. Didn't. I don't, I don't know Didn't if you've ever even, been around a dog which when you get gunfire. They don't lay there. No, exactly. <laughs> they fucking go nuts. They go nuts. But so if he, he came in screaming, where's the money? They would have been awake or, you know, at least no, stood he probably, up. He probably literally walked in there, walked past the dogs, knew that they would be an issue because they're huge. Yeah. And put two quick rounds because if they're right next to each other, it's not hard to go bang, bang and take so them both sad. out. So sad. And that's me probably so why sad. Joey came running out like, what the? F-? You know what I mean? And then he's just like, pop, 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 shot him. So Dr. Scudder sees all this. He's he's sick, you know. And callously, Tony West drew his weapon and fired another round into each dog in front of Scudder to ensure they were gone and just to be a dick, I'm sure. Be a dick. Charles was said to have cried out at the sight at the sight of all this and his beloved pets. I just I can't imagine the horror he was in. Tony West then forced Charles past Odom's body and into the library where this asshat continued to demand to know where the money was kept. And get this, he's still wanting to know where the damn soldering iron was. Like, we don't have one. You stupid shit. Jeez. Do you need me to write it down on paper for you with a crayon? Charles, undoubtedly just concerned for the state of his partner, Joey Odom, darted his, made his way over towards his lover. And West warned him by saying, sit back down or I will shoot you. Charles Scudder's final words were, and I quote, I asked for this. Which is so sad. I, I, I'm sure he meant, like, I moved us out here, you know, or something like that. It just or breaks my heart. Or because of the Church of Satan. Or yeah, who knows? who knows? Who knows? Who knows what it is? With that, Tony West shot Dr. Charles Scudder in the face, and this shot did not kill him. However, Scudder fell to his knees, and as he tried his best to struggle to his feet, West fired three more shots into his head. Avery and West then proceeded to ransack the whole house, finding hardly anything. They ended up stealing only a bag of coins, a gold-plated dagger, some wine, a pair of handcuffs, and a leather jacket, completely missing the three vials of government-grade LSD that Scudder had stored away in the bottom of his desk drawer. And these two are so stupid, if they found Worth it, they wouldn't money. know what it was. They wouldn't know. I have no, no idea. They'd probably think it was like some wine-tasting or some gay devil-worshipping material I don't, I don't know they're too stupid to figure it out they are after the ransacking was done avery and west heard gurgling noises coming from the body of dr scudder he was miraculously still, still alive. alive yeah so avery stood over charles and fired a fifth shot into the center of his forehead right between his eyes officially ending his life t-zone he had been shot in the head a total of five times i said t-zone because people probably were like what the fuck are you talking about it's your T-zone. Well, there's there's two parts of your your brain, your head when you shoot at. Mm-hmm. It causes instant paralysis and death. It's the T-zone, which is basically your eyes and your nose and the neuromotor strip, which runs from ear to ear, basically your temple to your temple. Oh. So when you're trained in like 
sniper yeah. or any of those. You know to aim for that. You know to aim for those two places because even if you have a hostage, mm-hmm. it will incapacitate you. You can't even pull a trigger. Like your instant instant death. Yeah. Body done. No trigger. No twitch. Nothing. So he had been shot in the head of total of five times. Remember this. This is important. <laughs> Avery would then state after shooting Dr. Scudder the final time, he said, by God, tell me I don't have the guts to kill somebody. <laughs> like, you're so cool, Such Avery. badass, you're bro. Billy badass over here. Oh, my God. After this, Avery and Wells heard a sound coming from the kitchen astonishingly, they saw Joey Odom, who was somehow still alive, trying to drag himself towards his longtime partner to assist him. Avery put one final bullet into him, and both men were now dead. Avery then decided to steal Dr. Scudder's Jeep, so he drove, drove off in that. Because <laughs> that's not With a pentagram on the <laughs> side of it. pentagram on it. Like, come on, guy. So, yeah, so Avery drove off in Dr. Scudder's Jeep. We didn't do it. You have the pentagram Jeep, motherfucker. Like, what? And um, he drove off in that while Wes managed to get his own truck to start. And in the backseat of Wes's vehicle were a terrified Teresa Hudgens and Joey Wells. Yeah, they're like, oh, we wanted free wine, not murder. Yeah, exactly. They all returned to West's and Avery's trailer where they assured Teresa Hudgens and Joey Wells that they would kill them if they ever told anyone. And seeing as the two young people saw what they did, I'm sure they believed them. Like, yeah, no doubt. We know. (laughs) We know what you're capable of. Um, I honestly believe that Joey Wells and Teresa Hudgens had nothing to do with this horrendous crime and they both were just completely blindsided that night. Teresa even went on to write an amazing book that I will link in the show notes below. And it's a firsthand account of that horrific night that certainly scarred her forever. Oh, no, I guarantee you it fucked her up for a while. Yeah. In fact, even West and Avery felt they couldn't trust her not to rat them out because they held that girl hostage for four days without any access to a telephone or the outside world before letting her go just to kind of feel her out. Make sure she wasn't going to go rat them out. West and Avery decided that they needed to get as far as way as far away from Tryon as possible. So they both loaded up their stolen Jeep with a pentagram on the side of it and headed to Alabama with every intention to eventually end up in Mexico, as they often do. People fleeing. I mean, it's one thing if you steal a white Chevy. <laughs> you steal a fucking Jeep with a pentagram on it. Like you kind of stick out everywhere you go. Yeah, just a tad. Like Especially back then. <laughs> it's not even like you have racing stripes. You have a fucking pentagram on it. Like, everyone and their brother is looking at it like, what the fuck? And you know they're too stupid to, like, scratch that off or something, repaint over it. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't even, like, what do you expect is going to happen when you drive through the entire southern U.S. in the 1980s in the Bible with belt? a fucking pentagram on your car? <laughs> like, no one's going to notice you? Stupid. So, they're not done murdering. Oh. On December 13th in Vicksburg, Mississippi, the two pulled over into a rest stop to get some shut-eye because they'd been driving a long time. And it was here at this rest stop that they spotted a Marine, Lieutenant Kirby Key Phelps. Why did I want to yell Lieutenant Dan? I don't don't know what's wrong with me. (laughs) Sleeping in his Toyota near them. So he was asleep. He was resting. He was driving too. The two murderers decided that they did, in fact, need to ditch their stolen Jeep with (laughs) pentagram on it so what better way to do that than to steal this unassuming man's car so west got his revolver and approached lieutenant phelps and banged on his window 
scaring the absolute shit out of him, I'm sure. He was sound asleep. He just passed out in his car. These dudes are just banging on yeah. his car. Shit. And Wes got Phelps out of the car at gunpoint, cuffed him, escorted him out into the woods, and then shot him three times in the head. They're such badasses. <sighs> Pussies. He robbed the dead man of his wallet and ID and left him in the woods. Wes then drove off in the man's Toyota while Avery disposed of the Jeep. Well, at least they got rid of the pentagram car, finally. They're not too super stupid. Then the two headed for Texas with plans to go to Mexico eventually. bring that shit here. But by the time Lieutenant Lieutenant Phelps' body was discovered on December 15th, the two men were long gone, Avery and West. I mean, they were were here. So once they police found. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's going to be days before they find the body. Oh, yeah. Obviously. Now, before we get back to West and Avery and learn of their fate, let's talk about how the horrible crime scene back at Corpsewood Manor was discovered. Yeah. How the fuck do they find that shit? Because no one goes, oh, oh, I can understand maybe. Go ahead. Sorry. It was actually on December 15th, the day that Lieutenant Phelps' body was discovered, that a good friend of Dr. Charles Scudder and Joey Odom, a man named Raymond Williams, stopped by the manor. He wanted, he had just come by to deliver some sad news that their mutual friend had passed away, unfortunately. This poor dude. I know. He noticed that Dr. Scudder's Jeep was gone, so he must have figured that they were in town, like, buying supplies. You know, it was the 18th day or something. So he just turned his car around and left. He didn't even walk up to the door. Well, yeah, you show up to your friend's house and their car's not there. You're like, you're going to think they're not there. The next morning, Raymond Williams went back to the manor to try again, and despite the Jeep still being gone, he decided to approach the main house. Yeah, maybe one of them's home, the other one has. Yeah. When he did, he noticed the utility door was open, and through the door, he could clearly see a bullet-riddled kitchen door. And he's like, shit, this isn't good. So he just backed up, and he just booked it into town, Taylor's Ridge, to go in and phone in some help. As soon as they could, police stepped onto the property, and they knew it was going to be bad. Sorry, let me re-say that. <laughs> so stupid. As soon as the police stepped onto the property, they knew that this was not going to be good. According to Amy Petula's book, the two things that struck investigators the most was a stench of filth and death. And like, and in the small space of the house, the sight of Scudder and Odom and the two dogs lying on the floor. It was just heartbreaking. Oh, I'm sure it was a heartbreaking scene. And then they've been dead for how many days? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's been a while. Not- They don't smell good after a few days. It was also noted that the absolutely insane amount of flies that had overtaken the house. Dead bodies. One seasoned detective remarked that he had come up on many crime scenes in his day and had witnessed many dead bodies, but had never seen that many flies swarm a scene. They were all over the house, not just where the bodies were. Shortly after this discovery, they called in the GBI, the Georgia Bureau of Investigations, and um, the GBI crime lab, and it was just an absolute circus from here on out. Upon searching the house, all of Corpsewood's little dark secrets would come to light, and you can imagine the uproar that occurred when they discovered the alleged pornography collection and the pink room. In the ledger. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. We'll get back to that. And like I touched on before, not one single photo of this pleasure room, nor the pornography collection, nor the alleged guest sign-in book or ledger are in evidence, nor available through any other source to this very day. Why? That's so strange to me. 
We talked about that earlier. I really think there was prominent people on there. Mm-hmm. Whether oh, yeah. they whether they necessarily engaged in anything, their name was on there. Yeah. Right. So, just say we we have friends. If we were just to say, we, we we don't, but if we had friends that had mm-hmm. something like this, yeah, and we went to hang out. Even if you didn't partake in, in you know group things or homosexual right. stuff or any of this stuff, if your name's on the ledger, you look you're bad. Instantly thrown and into in a that small picture. town. Oh my god, small town. And if you got a mayor, a judge, a police chief, business owners. It's instantly like, no, we can't do that. And here's the clincher. Remember the three vials of LSD that Dr. Scudder had brought with him from the University of Georgia? No, sorry, from the University to Georgia? From Loyola. Well, they were found by investigators. But they later just disappeared from evidence. (laughs) Yeah, the government came and took them. Just into thin air. (laughs) Government came and took them. Or, I mean, who knows at this point, Government came and took them. So the investigators may have been overwhelmed just a little bit. However, they would catch a huge break in the case when they received a phone call from one very distraught Miss Teresa Hudgens. She told the head detective on the case absolutely everything she knew from start to finish. And so now they know who to be looking for. You yeah, know? and she probably was quiet this whole time. She didn't know they were, if they were still around. And obviously she gave it some time. They threatened to kill her once she yeah. realizes they're gone. And this thing's out the bag. She's like, okay, I know who did this shit. Like, let me tell you what happened. Absolutely. They're, they threatened to fucking kill me. Yeah. So I, I didn't f- say shit. I feel a little bit safe now, so I'm going to go ahead and just tell you. You guys are clearly looking for someone, so they're hiding. Meanwhile, Avery and Wes decided to split up in Texas. They got in a fight at a strip club and parted ways. Because that's what you do when you're running from multiple murders. You go to strip clubs. <laughs> they did. Avery was finding it hard to survive out on his own alone, so he decided to hitchhike his way back home to Georgia. What a dumbass. He's very dumb. He called his mom at a gas station in Marietta, and when he made that phone call, the police were tipped off, and he was arrested without incident. I guarantee so he's, you, he's Georgia BI and everybody else is listening to her phone. Oh, for sure. During police questioning, Avery, of course, tried to blame everything on his partner, Tony West. He even told the police about Lieutenant Phelps' murder and told them they would be able to find his identification and wallet on West's. And until this point, they never would have thought to link uh, West and Avery to Why? Lieutenant they're Phelps. So, it's so a different state. It's a Mississippi. Yeah. It's, it's, so they're putting it all together. But, but the important note there is that it became a federal crime. Yeah, absolutely. Because now they're in a killing spree across the state lines, so now it's a yeah. federal crime. Now Tony West, <laughs> you'll you'll get a kick out of this one, Pat. Okay. Tony West's arrest uh, would not go as smoothly, and this is kind of crazy. Like like Avery, West just wanted to go back home. You know, we're talking like it was during almost the holidays. He yeah, wanted to go back home. Ran out of money. They don't have any mm-hmm. money coming in. We're not dealing with two smart young men here. <laughs> So on Christmas Eve, West ran out of gas in Chattanooga, Tennessee on Rossville Boulevard, which was a short distance from the Georgia state line. Mm -hmm. This is important. It's close. He was just done running by this time. So he literally walked up to a club where a cop was parked outside, walked up to the cop and was like, take me in. I'm wanted for murder. The police officer ran a report on West and found no outstanding warrants, which there was, but nevertheless... He just didn't see it. It wasn't in the system. Yeah. It didn't get to their database yet, whatever but, it was. So he was like, so. look, let me give you a ride um, just across the state line to the Georgia nearest Georgia police station. 
and you can tell them all about it. Yeah. When the officers inside the Rossville police station process West, they officially knew what they were dealing with and, you know, what he was in for. However, there was a problem. The police agencies were worried that it would cause an issue that this officer from Tennessee had driven West outside of his own jurisdiction. So they actually asked this Chattanooga, Tennessee officer to take West back to Tennessee while a GA uh, Georgia patrolman followed them so that West could physically walk himself across the state line into the waiting arms of the Rossville, Georgia PD. <laughs> I mean, walk to me. It's stupid. But it because makes the sense, dude just I guess. confessed to a crime, you would want to take him into custody and transport him. <laughs> but, I mean, it makes sense at the same time because you just drive to the border, you park 10 feet from each other, and you're like, come yeah, here, come here, big boy. <laughs> come here, because now you're in my jurisdiction. Like, I get it. What a mess. So, Wes was finally arrested on Christmas Eve. <laughs> Kenneth Avery Brock and Tony West were both tried for their horrific crimes, and West was initially sentenced to death, but after a retrial, his sentence was converted to life in prison. How? Yeah. Because he put it all on the other motherfucker and probably rolled on him. Probably. Avery Brock received three consecutive life sentences. Good. So thank God these two monsters were put away for life. So now let's get to the part of the story that just baffles me. And I think that you'll like this part, Pat. Okay. So Dr. Scudder in his will had actually left all of his worldly possessions to Joey Odom. Um, so since Joey was deceased, they died together. Whatever uh, was left, his surviving children, whatever his surviving children didn't want of his estate, the rest was kind of up for grabs or sold at auction. Right, estate sale or one right. of those things. And there was some crazy shit in this manor. <laughs> well, they were part of the Church of Satan. They were eccentric as fuck. Yeah, and they collected. You know, word cr- quickly spread that any item taken from the manor holds a curse. And at first I called BS, but then I got to digging. <laughs> I'm going to start with my favorite item. Oh, shit. Okay. okay. And you're not going to believe this. You really aren't. Okay. So there was a portrait of Dr. Scudder. As soon as you walked in the, mattre- the mattress, the mansion, you would see it hanging on the wall. Dr. Scudder actually painted this of himself. It was a self-portrait. He claimed that it was a vision of how he would one day die. The self-portrait, I'll post a picture of it on our Instagram, is a painting that is clearly Dr. Scudder blindfolded with five bullet holes to his head, which is exactly how he died. Get the fuck out of here. I swear to God, you can look at it. I have it. I I don't have the the picture. I'm going to look at it like, what the fuck? Can you believe that? That's nuts. A relative of one of the prosecuting attorneys, um, they actually took this painting as a souvenir And he had heard rumors around town that anything you take from the manor is cursed. But as a logical and educated man, he didn't believe it. He kept the painting in his desk drawer. And for whatever reason, he later gifted it to someone else. He didn't want it anymore. So we don't know. Okay. Um, No biggie. But many of the expensive collectibles were purchased um, by one guy who was a firearms dealer out of Atlanta who had recently married one of his employees. Around the time of the Corpsewood murders, they, him and his wife had started a tiny company that sold gun kits internationally that people could purchase and then assemble their own submachine guns. It's a way around the law. Yeah. There, there, yeah, there's, you, can sub, you can sell the kits or 
two, basically a lot of times you can sell two parts of the kit separately. Right. And you're basically getting around the class three, class four firearm laws. You're not selling a gun. You're, you're selling, selling a kit to make the gun. You bought two separate kits. Right. And it makes a gun that's not on you. That's on them. Well, as soon as this dealer purchased collectibles from Corpsewood, the ATF lost, launched yeah. an investigation, yeah. and that investigation indicated that his guns were being sold to international gun dealers, drug smugglers, as well as the mafia and other organized crime. Well, no shit, because what are you going to do when you're trying to find guns like that? You're going to go to a place where it's not really tracked. You're not buying the actual gun. You're buying a kit. So everybody that's buying that shit is going to be like IRA. Yeah. Fucking mob. Fucking not the good guys. Crime, not the good guys. Terrorism. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, yeah. You're not going to get Steve. good customers. It's not Steve that wants an MP5 yeah. or an AR-15. It's, I'm not going to go... Into who? It's but just bad you know. people. The arms dealer's wife believed that this was all due to the corpsewood curse. So she took all of her You're husband. Selling fucking illegal firearms across state lines and international lines. Shut the fuck up! It's not because of the curse. So she took all of her husband's collectibles that he had purchased from the manor and shot them to pieces before burning the remnants in a bonfire on her property. Yeah. The golden harp and the pink gargoyle statue were auctioned off to a collector, so they are in good hands. And as far as I know, they have there haven't been any creepy occurrences with these items. Perhaps Dr. Uh, Scudder, who is a collector himself, respects the man's macabre interest. Who knows? As for the manor itself and the chicken house, both structures mysteriously burned down to the ground while Kenneth Avery Brock and Tony West were on trial while the trial was occurring. Okay. That's not, it's not hard of grasp, right? Mm -hmm. You can throw conspiracy theory in there. You can also throw townspeople that didn't want this fucking memory in their town anymore. Maybe. Or maybe it was because of the curse, because of the church of Satan, they wanted it gone. There's so many reasons that somebody could have lit this thing on fire and burned it down. All that's left to this day is rubble. Today, Corpsewood Manor is privately owned and is a hangout spot for teens, Satanists, and, of course, paranormal investigators. No shit. Because some fucking Satanist <laughs> somewhere that has money is like, I'm buying that fucking property. Or somebody from the Church of Satan or a follower of Anton LaVey is like, you know what? That's a fucking spot. Oh, sure. And many of those who gather to this day claim that they can hear the faint sound of a harp being played. There are some more sinister claims that state if you take anything from the property, you will, in fact, be cursed. So although there are some remnants of the mansion lying around, like a large utility door and the chimney from the chicken coop, along with many old bricks and other rubble, so you could go and just take a brick, I suggest you don't. Just leave everything as you found it. It's not, far <laughs> it's not far-fetched to believe if they're part of the Church of Satan. Yeah. Maybe they were dabbling in rituals. Maybe they said, hey, we're going to curse everything in our house well, remember, if somebody steals it. Um, I told you about Dr. Scudder. He told people he summoned a demon to protect his manor. Exactly. So, so they, did they he? Could have, they could have done some sort of ritual. Maybe it was summoning a demon. Maybe it was somewhat, something simple as saying, you know, we put a curse on our house that if you steal from us, you're cursed. Yeah. You don't know what they did when they're dabbling in those kind of dark things. So this part's really cool. As far as visiting... Many people who park their car, because you park on Dead House Road, and then you walk up to visit the manor, right? Yeah. Uh, they have found, after they visit the manor and they get back to their car, that their car won't start. Weird. Remember, even Wes's car didn't start. Yeah. Reports yeah. of this happening date all the way back to when the investigation was still ongoing. One GBI crime lab technician stated that he did not want to be in the manor and work the crime scene at night. However, there was just so much to process that he was forced to work overnight one time by himself on one occasion. Mm -hmm. He stated that after he concluded his work, he went back to his vehicle and found that it wouldn't start. 
And since then, reports of this happening have been many, which I found really coincidental because if you remember, Tony West's truck wouldn't start at the murder scene when Teresa, Joey Wells and Teresa Hudgens tried to escape. Yeah. They couldn't start it. So crazy, right? It does add an aspect to that paranormal. Right? Yeah. Because many times when there's a strong paranormal presence, it's suspected to drain power, mm-hmm. electricity specifically from batteries. So it Maybe. could be something like that. It could be the curse. could just be really bad fucking luck coincidentally. So what happened to Charles and Joey's bodies? You'll find this interesting. So Dr. Scudder was cremated. Do you remember the crematorium that was involved in the debacle? Yeah. And it was during around the time where he was sent to be cremated that that happened at oh. the Tri-State Crematorium. Good Lord. Yeah, okay. debacle. Um, so he was cremated, supposedly, and his ashes, ashes were taken back to Wisconsin where he was born. We don't know exactly where he is. Okay. It's widely believed that Joey is buried somewhere on the property at Corpsewood. He has one sister who would know where his remains are, but um, she's remained kind of mum on this subject. So I think that that should be good enough for us, and we should just let him rest in peace. She gave him his final wishes and doesn't need anybody else to know about it. Yeah, just just leave him alone. And that, my friends, is the absolutely insane tale of the murders at Corpsewood Manor. I just have no words. (laughs) Yes, it's just nuts. Isn't it nuts? It's fucking crazy. It's crazy. And to me, this story is just a lesson in how horrible and judgmental people can be. These two yeah. men did nothing to deserve this. They had so much to offer the world. They were just living their life, you know, and... And I can see... Because it was different from others, Yep, they were demonized. I can see where there's aspects of conspiracy theory and yeah. all those other things. Because we all know the government... In many cases, we'll go to, especially back then, we'll go to extreme lengths to protect their secrets. But I think what this was, was a case of just theft, mm-hmm. two dumbasses, and some... Two psychopaths. And isn't and it some crazy? homophobia, um, honestly. Two, again, we're seeing two psychopath killers met each other and linked up. They connected. How did the stars I think, align? <laughs> I think that is the catalyst, right? Because there's... I think the aspect of homophobia in this one really launched it, right? Because they're all hanging out. They're doing their thing. You know, Charles tries to do homosexuality (laughs) with West. And Avery's already doing it. Avery's already, you know, having consensual sexual encounters with him. Now he tries to have homosexuality with Mr. West. And you know West was giving him a hard time. Avery. So so West was like, why the fuck were you involved in that? Why would you let that happen? And so that's what sparks it. It's literally, honestly, it's a hate crime. It's a hate crime. It is a hate crime. That's all it is. You can't, I mean, it's absolutely a hate crime. There's no better way to say it. It's two awful people that are monsters alone, or Mm -hmm. bad people alone, but together became monsters. Yeah. It reminds me of fucking Otis, the tool bag, Mm -hmm. and and fucking Henry, the douchebag. Two monsters on their own, but when you put them together, they're absolute just psychopathic, just horrific human beings. Yeah, absolutely. And fuck those dudes. I hope they rot in prison. Yeah, me too. I hope West cannot stop all the homosexuality that's put upon him. <laughs> Me too. In prison. Me too. Uh, <laughs> I yep. Just, I just hope for pain and torture for both of those assholes. Absolutely. And I'm glad that I wanted to spend more time talking about Dr. Scudder because I think a lot of people can look at him and just pass judgment really quick. But they're fucking different. Who cares? And 
and they that's, weren't hurting anybody. And they're that's just not life. right. He was he was he was so full of knowledge and they're actually the opposite of hurting people. They're literally fucking opening their doors to anybody. They're hanging out with whoever wants to hang out. They were good people. Nice people. We needed to get to know them. You know, they're just li- they're weird. Mm-hmm. You know, they're following it, and you know, Levey and the Church of Satan. Cool, whatever. You do your thing over there. Mm-hmm. You're gay. Oh no. Yeah. We're all screwed. Like, no. And they... They're just... They're not hurting anybody. And they're leaving the middle of nowhere. Like, people are going to I, them. They're not coming to people. I hate that Dr. Scudder felt that he brought this upon Joey and himself. Maybe, when he, in, With his final but, words. I hate that. But he says that, right? He also talks about summoning demons and doing these things. So maybe that's what he's referring to. Maybe. He maybe. could be referring to being gay in the 1980s. He could be referring to bringing them here to Georgia. He could be referring to moving to the middle of nowhere, Georgia. He could yeah. be referring to summoning demons in his house. You never know. You don't, we, you'll we don't never know what have that, that answer. What that meant. He's obviously gone. So you can't ask I just him. hate that his last thought was a negative one. He's I mean, like, obviously it's going like, to be negative. Fuck. I did this. Yeah. Like, and, and, and that's not true. You know, this was done to him. Oh, hundred percent. It was done to him. But anyway, guys, um, that's all for us today, and we'll be that's back. All? Jesus. <laughs> we'll be back uh, next week. Don't forget, let us know if you want a sticker. I'll post a picture of them. Let us know about the stickers. Let us know about Patreon. Let us know about Patreon, or if you have ideas that you guys would like to see or hear from us on Patreon. Yeah. I'm going to go set up that stuff this weekend. I probably won't have anything up because I don't have any content to put on there, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make one. Yeah. We'll do a Tipsy Tuesday live or something. Get to know all you listeners. Yeah, where we, we do love y'all. short series or, you know, cryptids. Yeah. Or small cases or whatever. Or the darker cases. Or the, hey, the really bad stuff that we don't want to put. <laughs> I Never mind. We put some bad shit out. Oh, there's some. I'm like, the oh. really bad cases with the Gainesville Ripper. Okay, we, we put some bad shit in the world. We do put some bad shit in the world, but also some good shit. So We put some bad shit to show how bad people are. And yeah. You know, in a lot of ways, it doesn't always sound like it, but we do try to honor the victims. Or we do to try to be respectful of them. We do try to more about bring information about their lives and their horrific ends more so than we're not glorifying these fucking pieces of shit. We want to remember the victims. Right. And I want to get that across. We are not glorifying these pieces of shit. Ew, no. We're vilifying them, if anything. Yeah, we hate them. We want people's stories to be told. We, you know, we told the stories of Tina Fails or Kellyanne Tynes and all these other ones that no one knows about because mm-hmm. we want their stories out there. Yeah. Fuck the asshole that did it. I want them to be remembered for the good person they were, whoever they were, and their story to be out there for everybody to remember that people are fucking bad. Yep. Fuck them. <laughs> like, Absolutely. Judgmental, bad. People suck sometimes, but there's also good people. And as Courtney has said many times in the first few episodes we did, just don't help people. <laughs> we don't help people. We help ourselves. No, we help people. We just don't help them in the side of the road at two in the morning. <laughs> don't help them at all. We don't fucking do that. What about me looks like I can help you with your car, sir? <laughs> nothing. <laughs> nothing. I'll be with you, nothing. <laughs> nothing you have, about you me. You have to take me to get the car inspected because you have no idea what to tell them. <laughs> <laughs> They're really like, that'll be $500. I'm like, that sounds like a great price. <laughs> You're like... Do we bring jumper cables? I'm like, no, we're going to get an inspection. That sounds like a deal. I got it on sale for 500, Pat. Cool. (laughs) Would you get a car? Anyway, we're getting wacky over here. All right, that's all from us. We love you guys. We'll see you next week. Be good to each other.